if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And, you know, there's never a good time to be honest, because I, I talked about it for three years and I was like, Oh, well, when this happens, it'll be a better time. And then, Oh, now that that happened, now I just have to wait for this to happen. It'll be a better time. And I realized there's never a good time. There's never a good time to walk away from a salaried position to start your own business. It's just impossible. Um, so you just have to do it. You have to take the leap. And part of that leap is what drives you is the, you know, you don't have the option to not succeed because there's not going to be anyone there to bail you out. The bison, the the bison, 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 the the bison. I think I hear that bison. Hello, Bison, and welcome to another episode of the Nichols College Alumni Experience Podcast. Today, we have Bison alumni Jim Capiano, who is a 2007 grad and is currently the owner of Integrity Life Brokerage, which is a division of the Pinnacle Group. Today, we're going to talk about Cappy's time at Nichols College, where as a dual sport management marketing major, he interned with the New York Rangers to his current business venture. And we'll get into some pretty interesting information about some alternative investment strategies that the life insurance industry can offer. As any of his classmates would tell you, it's hard to imagine spending time with Cappy that isn't pretty entertaining, so I anticipate a fun 30-minute conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Hey, thanks, Brett. Uh, really excited to be here. It's my first ever podcast. So, so how are things uh, out on Long Island these days? Uh, we're we're doing pretty good. Uh, it was a little uh, little hairy for a while here. A lot of businesses are shutting down. We're we're still in quarantine. Um, not a lot of businesses are open. Obviously, the essentials have stayed open, but for the most part, the restaurants are still closed. The bars, <clears throat> anything other than you know, grocery stores, hardware stores, uh, pet stores, things like that are open, but starting to get back to normal. Things are opening up. I see a lot more people out and about. Uh, so we're getting there. It's getting close. They're hoping, especially with summertime coming and the nice weather here now, that they're going to be able to start opening up at about a 50% capacity within the next week or so. Yeah, I mean, Long Island is an eater's paradise. I used to recruit out there when I was in admissions, and I remember Rockinelli's Pizza and Hot Pog, Bagel Boss. I mean, the best coffee cake in the world. You guys have it all up there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, the big thing is the uh, all the dining along the water on both the North and the South Shore. Um, you know, they they kind of they live for the the four months of of good weather. You know, June, July, August, and September is where they make their money. So you know, the longer we go into June, where they're not allowed to have that that dining room filled and it, they are filled all the time that they're open. Uh, you know, those business owners are really going to start struggling. So, well, fingers crossed we're on the right trend. So let's, let's go back to a, a happier time, uh, your time at Nichols college. Uh, so you were a sport management major and a marketing major during your time at Nichols. As I mentioned in the intro, you interned with the New York Rangers at Madison Square Garden your junior year. So how does somebody go from interning from one of the most storied hockey teams in sport history to kind of taking a pivot after graduation and entering the financial services and insurance industries? Yeah, Brent, I'll tell you, that's a question I ask myself all the time. Um, <laughs> so the, the Rangers were kind of a, a natural fit for me, uh, being from New York, living on Long Island, uh, where I grew up. I was an hour train ride uh, into Penn Station, which is underneath Madison Square Garden. So 
I would get on a 757 train and I'd be at my desk by 8.59 every day. I really enjoyed my time with the Rangers there. It was over a summer between my junior and senior year. I played hockey at Nichols. I'm, I'm a big hockey guy. I still love hockey. So getting into the business side of it was uh, made all the sense in the world at the time. As much fun as I had, it was great for the summer. I kind of decided that I did not want to work in the city in general. You know, sitting on that train every single day, looking at the same people every single day, got old really quick. And I kind of made that decision that no matter what, I wasn't working in the city. I was going to work out on Long Island. Um, I'd rather sit in 45 minutes of traffic to go four miles and sit on an hour train ride. The, the Rangers, they did offer me a, a position there in, in their sales team. And then they offered me a position in the marketing side of things on the marketing department. That's where I interned. But, you know, I, I didn't take it probably looking back for all the wrong reasons. I, I kind of had a lot of time to make up. So I was one of those hockey guys at Nichols that, that played juniors. So I didn't go to school until I was 21. Meaning when I graduated, I was 24. Uh, you know, all my friends, they'd been out of college for, for years already. They were three or four years into their careers. And I wanted to keep up with the Joneses. You know, I didn't want to come out making a starting salary. I wanted to come out and make what my friends were making. I want to make more than what my friends were making. So I'll never forget when I saw the amount of money that I was getting offered to work at the Rangers. I was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go back and I'm going to make more money doing something else. And I ended up taking a job at a who's who's registry. You know, one of those ones where uh, you, you find your name and it's supposed to be a big networking group and a marketing opportunity. So it's um, a sales job. It's a sales job. It's an over the phone sales job. And I'll be honest, it was, it was tough every day, eight to eight to five thirty, at a cubicle, hammering the phone, picking it up, calling people, selling them on this membership. But I will say it was unbelievable training because it just turned me into an animal on the phone. You know, we had to follow a script. I, I learned about really how to, how to follow the, the whole sales process through, through a script. And you, you kind of understand the emotions of, of the client or the buyer and understand through this script, you know, how you're kind of, you're enticing them. I did that. I mean, I only lasted about three months and I said, I got to get out of here. I can't stand this. And I started interviewing at financial firms, uh, New York Life, Mass Mutual, Prudential, MetLife. And I ended up going with MetLife because they seemed to have the best training program. And what really enticed me the most about the job was you never had to ask for a raise. I never had to ask for time off. It was my, it was my business. From, from day one, it was my business. So if I wanted to make more money, all I had to do was make more sales. If I wanted to take a three-day weekend, I could do that. Uh, it was, you know, everything was on me. I didn't really have a boss. I had a manager, but I didn't have a boss. And that gave me the opportunity to, to catch up where, you know, I didn't have to be doing something for four years, five years to, to make the money that I wanted to make right out of college. And that's really how I made the transition into the, the financial services. Which I think is an interesting point because that's something that gets lost in translation to a lot of uh, college students and, and recent graduates even is that, you know, the company that you start with after college isn't necessarily going to be the company you're with for the rest of your life. And sometimes even those, you know, I don't want to say crappy jobs, but working the phones hard, doing it boiler room style, that's going to give you some experience, even if it's not what you want to do for the rest of your life, to kind of take that transition and, and go to the next phase. So I think the important thing, like you mentioned, is is taking a little something out of out of every position, even if it's not ideal, and saying, how's that going to set me up at the next position that I'm at? 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that because, you know, when you look back, you can always say, I, I really didn't like that job or, you know, that job did nothing for me or I didn't make nearly enough money in that job. But what you don't realize is everything's an experience and no matter what, you're going to learn something. You either learn a skill, you learn a trade, you learn what not to do, you learn what you don't like. So it is important to, to take a little something out of every position you've been in. Um, rarely are you going to come out of college or come out of anywhere for that matter and take a position and stay there for the rest of your life, uh, especially on the business side of things. There's always stepping stones. You're always looking for the next opportunity, the next good thing. Unfortunately, you do have to start a little bit lower, sometimes lower than where you want to start, but you know, you always have to have your options open. And and that's what I did. I just said, hey, I'm, you know, financial services seems like it's a fit for what my goals are. I didn't know the first thing about financial services. I didn't know life insurance. I didn't know, you know, how to, how to sell mutual funds. I didn't know any of that. I started uh, around September of 07 to, to get my licensing done, finished uh, my last licensing. My, my last test was in February of 08. So you had to pass your life exam, your health exam, get those two licenses. I had to get my series six and I had to get my series 63. And I wasn't able to officially start up until I had all four of those done. So from September to February, I was basically working without making money. You know, I'd, I'd do the odd jobs, work for my friends' construction companies during the day, and then at night go to training classes so I can get these these tests done. And they're they're stressful because you're in a room and you're at a computer and you have to answer, you know, whatever it is, 150 questions, and then you hit the submit and that little, you know, that little arrow keeps going around in circle while it's telling your score, and it seems like it's forever. And all you need to say is oh, yeah. 71. That's all you need. If you got a 73, you study <laughs> too hard. All you need is a 71. Give me my 71 and get me out of here. And then, you know, you sit there and it's like, all right, what's my score? What's my score? And then finally you get it. And okay, good. Now I'm licensed. I actually, I remember specifically, I started my first day at MetLife day after the Giants beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl the first time. Oh, so we're subject yeah, for, yeah. for, I mean, I'm a Jets fan. So that Super Bowl was torture no matter what. But I'd seen um, enough okay. of the Pats winning. So I remember going and starting at MetLife and everyone was a little groggy at work and I couldn't imagine why. From financial services, you kind of transitioned into the life insurance industry. I, I don't think it'll probably offend you to say that the life insurance industry or the insurance industry in general isn't exactly a sexy industry when it comes to attracting college students. I think for whatever reason, there's an overall perception Maybe it's a little stodgy. Maybe there's a little mystery or intimidation that there are just so many facets, which going back to our, our conversation before is actually a good thing from a career perspective. But I see a lot of alumni who go into the insurance field and they have very incredibly long and stable, rewarding careers. So I guess my question to you would be, what do you think the insurance industry can do to attract more college students to look at that as a career early on? before they graduate. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head really is one of the things that this industry is lacking the most is youth. You, you picture the old insurance salesperson and picture an old man with white hair and the black suit and the red tie. And it, there's a lot of it. Um, you know, youth and diversity are two things that there are not a lot of in the industry. There's a lot more now than when I started, and that's a good thing because you know we need it. The country is becoming more diverse, and uh, we, we need that. We need more women in the industry. We need more uh, minorities in the industry, and we need more young people in the industry. Young people mainly because 
somebody's going to have to take over the reins when the older generation leaves the business. And that was one of the major reasons that I never got out of the business is because I looked at it and I said, wow, you know, the, the country is getting older. There's going to be a transfer of wealth happening over the next 10 to 20 years. Somebody's going to have to facilitate it. And a lot of the people that are doing it now aren't still going to be working when it happens. Somebody's got to do it. Why not be me? I did transition more into life insurance than investments, which is a little odd because uh, when I was at MetLife as an advisor, uh, I would say 80% of what I did was investment related. What I was good at on the life insurance side was was the case design. Was I would work with work with a team of people and I would be the one that would kind of put together a case more so than, than other people did and find the right product and, and figure out a way to make it fit with the needs and the budget of the client. Like solving a puzzle in a way. In, in a lot of cases it is. Um, uh, and that's, what's interesting to me about the insurance side of things is it's not, you know, it's not really other insurance where you say, Hey, listen, this is what I have. And this is what I need to, to protect. Give me a quote on it. There's a lot of that in the business, but for the, for real insurance, when you're talking about estate transfers, business insurance, things like that, it's, it is a puzzle and it's, it's interesting. And the more creative you get with it, the more clients you get because clients talk to each other and say, hey, you, know, you got to see what my guy did for me. And then all of a sudden you're getting a referral. And there's not a, a feeling a whole lot better than when somebody calls you and says, hey, you just did this for my buddy and I want to buy that now. Uh, okay, well, well, let me be the one to sell it to you. That's actually how I got out of MetLife into what I consider the second position in my career, a family-owned company, which was a wholesaler, was a general agency. Uh, what I did then was no longer retail sales, I did wholesale. You know, to, to get back to what you were asking about the youth, I, I think what people don't understand about the industry, it's one of the few relationship-driven industries left out there. 90% of what I do is based on relationship building. 10% of what I do is built on on sales. And that's what I love about the business. I think kids who are getting out of college that are looking to build something, insurance and financial services is a great way to do it. It really is. It's, it's creating your schedule. It's building up your client base. And then a lot of it is socializing, which it's a hard sell to tell somebody, hey, listen, what you're going to be doing is entertaining. You know, it's lunches, it's dinners, happy hours, it's golfing, it's going to sporting events. That's a lot of it. And you build, you build friends and you become friends with your clients and you become friends with your colleagues. You're not working in a nine to five setting. You know, you don't have that traditional water cooler talk because you're on the road a lot. You're out visiting. You know, I work from home now. Um, a lot of people in the industry are working from their own satellite offices. Uh, the years of the large insurance agencies are, are coming to an end, especially with what's going on now. Um, it's going to be tough for a lot of them to come back. Right. So this whole working on your own thing, being a satellite, being an an entity by yourself is is really what this industry is moving towards. And I think for the younger generation, I think that's an attractive thing for them. That's what they're used to, being that separated entity, more so than when I got out of college and definitely more so than the generation before me. You, you nailed it in a way too, because if you look at skill sets, and I think this generation, whether it's fairly or unfairly, who are recently graduating kind of got the rub oh that you know they, they don't work as hard which i don't necessarily find to be true dealing with with nickel students anyways but w- one of the key skills that they have and, and this was probably growing up in a social media generation is making connections and kind of keeping those connections and you know whether it's instagram or twitter or facebook or whatever 
that experience that they've had establishing those relationships, I think is really going to help them, like you said, in, in this uh, relationship building type of a field. Given kind of where you were doing that, working with that family company, let's talk a little bit about where you are right now. So you recently kind of founded your own shop, Integrity Life Brokerage. You have an office there on Long Island. You're a division of Pinnacle Life, which is located in Florida. I mean, starting your own shop can't be an easy thing. A lot of our grads have that entrepreneurship spirit, but it can be a gamble to step away from that safety net. Why did you decide to kind of open your own shop and what types of things does someone have to have in place before they make a move like that? Yes. Yeah, so I was I was with a great company for, for seven years, uh, family run, uh, the the owner was the person who started it. It's funny. He started his company out of the bedroom of his house back in the 90s. And now it's this gigantic company that does astronomical numbers and sales. It was a great place to work. And I, I enjoyed my time there. And I was a rep for two years. Um, and then I ended up becoming the director of the life insurance department in my third year. And I was the director for the next five years. It was nothing to do with the company as to why... I wanted to move on and do my own thing. It was, it was again, purely, it was selfish. It was, I, I want my thing. I, I see what my owner did and he built this and this is his. I want to do something similar. To, to expect that I'm going to do it to that scale is obviously I would hope to do it. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm, my aim is. But he, he got in at a much different time and he focused on health insurance. I'm focused on life insurance. And I don't think that the growth spurt that the industry went through in the late 90s and the 2000s is going to repeat itself now. But at the same time, you know, when you own something, when it's yours, there's a, there's a never ending reward. And that's my exit strategy. My strategy in, in the future when I don't want to do this anymore is I have a never ending stream of income because it's mine. I can hand off the range to somebody. I can flat out sell it or I could just let it run out on its own. As long as it's mine, the money will keep coming to me. And I just realized the longer I waited to make the jump, the further away I'm pushing out the end game. And it really is something that, you know, when you first start your career, you know, the end game is not what you're really planning for. And if you are, great, you're, you're ahead of the game. But as you start to get into your career and you start seeing what other people did and how other people position themselves to be successful, you start to realize, I have to make moves now to not only take care of next week and next paycheck, but down the road. And the longer you wait to do that, the further away down the road gets. It was mm. something that I said, you know, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. There's never a good time, to be honest, because I, I talked about it for three years. And I was like, oh, well, when this happens, it'll be a better time. And then, oh, now that that happened, now I just have to wait for this to happen. It'll be a better time. And I realized there's never a good time. There's never a good time to walk away from a salaried position <laughs> to start your own business. It's just impossible. Um, so you just have to do it. You have to take the leap. And part of that leap is what drives you is the, you know, you don't have the option to not succeed because there's not going to be anyone there to bail you out. You know, you don't have much to fall back on when it's just you on an island. You know, there are a couple of things that you yeah. need. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to have the support at home to take the chance. I, I, would, I think that's extremely important. If you don't have that support at home or you're not in the position to get the support, it makes it much more difficult. The stability is important, but the lack of stability, I think is even more important because that's kind of the driving force behind you. I could I could tell from the day I left, it was uh, June 1st is when I started the Integrity, June 1st of, of 19. My 
focus and drive on June 1st was a lot different than my focus and drive was on May 1st. Because now all of a sudden it's all on me and it's mine. Everything I do now is, is mine and it's going to be my make or break every day. The instability, I think, is an important thing too. So what happens less than a year out, you, know, you start this venture up, all of a sudden a situation pops up like COVID, which is unseen, you know, since 1918 anyways. How do you as a, as a I guess you could say a new newer business owner, how do you handle something like that? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, somebody asked me for, you know, what, what advice do you have for starting a business? I said, don't do it about eight months before a pandemic. Number one advice, don't do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that, it threw me for a loop. I'll, I'll be completely honest i was having a conversation uh with with my wife i would say a month prior to COVID, and she said uh, how's everything going i said actually i said i'm ahead of where i thought i was going to be no i'm not really far ahead and we're not ready to retire but i'm i'm doing better than i thought i was going to be doing at this time last year business was going good my mill was full i was at meetings lined up i had good things coming down and then uh, i was it's it still makes me sick to talk about. I, I was about to close the biggest deal of my life Friday before the big shutdown. And they, the client called me up and said, hey, we have to postpone for whatever reason. They, let's, let's do this Monday morning. And then Sunday in New York, at least, Governor Cuomo came on and said, everything's shut down today at five o'clock. And I said, well, that, that's not going to be good for business. And I called the clients up Monday morning and they said, hey, you got to call us back at noon. We have a couple of conference calls we, that just got scheduled. And when I called them back by noon, they had lost their three biggest contracts on those conference mm. calls that they put me off for. Obviously, they canceled everything. They said, we, you know, we can't afford to pay these premiums because you know, we don't know how much longer we're going to stay in business. And that was everyone's mindset around here is we have no idea how anyone's going to survive. So people stopped paying their premiums. People stopped going through underwriting. Um, everything shut down. That was, that was tough. That was... Uh, kind of, you know, bring you back down to earth a little bit. It took a while to, to fight through and then you just kind of get back to work. And now things are getting a little bit more back to normal. Like I said earlier, businesses aren't fully open yet, but they're starting to open. Hopefully things are going to loosen up, you know, just like it was in 08. If we can see a bounce back, hopefully we'll bounce back stronger. This is a much different situation than 08, but the effect it had, I actually think this had a larger effect on people mentally than, than the housing crash in 08, for obvious reasons, because it, it's health related. But I think people really started to look at you know, their own mortality a lot more than they did in 08. In 08, you might lose your house. In this, you might lose your life. Well, there's a, there's a there's an episode that I did. Uh, I think it was uh, about four back with uh, a Nichols alum, Tom McIlvain, and he he his business kind of dealt with the 2008 financial crisis. You know, and we were able to kind of talk about a parallel with what was happening now with his business. He he, uh, and and it's a real interesting episode. I definitely recommend you check that one out if you're going through the backlog. But um, you know, the decisions he made, cost-cutting, alternative business models, they kind of solved the temporary problem back in 2008, but he's still using a lot of those today in the business. So you kind of mentioned earlier to me when we were talking a little bit pre, pre-podcast that a lot of people and businesses are kind of now looking at alternative investment strategies, which are revolving around the, the, the life insurance industry. So I guess this is kind of due to the volatility, the stock market, uncertain times. I know a lot of our alums are pretty financially savvy, and we're all pretty interested in hearing about alternative investment strategies. So could you bring us through this a little bit based on your business model? Sure. So one of the 
things that I think is the most underutilized investment strategy in the country is life insurance. And I'm not playing home team here because that's what I do. It's just when you look at the things that life insurance as an asset class provides, it does things that no other investment can. And I think that's extremely important in this environment, even more so than the 2008 environment. 2008, you had the bailout of the big company, uh, the big banks. There was just a bad business model there and the taxpayer paid for it with these bailouts, but the taxpayer paid for it because then they didn't lose the value of their home. Right now, you're having bailouts that are, are going out. I'm, I'm going to call them bailouts because it's no fault of, of people who are getting these PPP loans or the SBA disaster relief loans or the stimulus check. People didn't do anything to deserve to lose their job or, or have their door shut on their business. So I don't want to call it a bailout, but the company, uh, the country is, is doling out money and it's going to have to come back eventually. You know, we're, we're not going to just write a blank check and say, ah, well, that, this one's on us. Uh, you know, the government's going to want their money back eventually. And the way the money comes back to them, like always, is through taxes. And one of the advantages that life insurance gives that no other investment, or I shouldn't say no other investment, most investments don't give is after tax dollars going in, tax deferred growth and tax-free income. Um, it's basically like a Roth IRA. But the problem with a Roth IRA is if you make over a certain amount of money, you're no longer able to contribute to it. The other problem with a Roth IRA, it limits the amount you are able to contribute to it. A life insurance plan is a Roth IRA without those limitations if it's structured the right way. So for the person who is not struggling financially now, who is not worried about losing their job, or even if they are missing work, they have enough put away that the wealthy are not going to become poor because of this. Those type folks are the ones that look at this situation and say, all right, well, what are the advantages right now? The advantages are really low interest rates. Interest rates lower than I think anyone's ever seen. There are programs that will lend money to people to buy life insurance at an extremely low interest rate. Now, that's important because the money goes in, it grows tax deferred, and you take it out tax-free in the future. I, I think you and I and anybody else that's listening can agree that taxes are probably going to be going up soon. You know, they're, they're going to be higher in the future than they are now. What would you rather do, pay a known amount of tax on a lower amount of money now or an unknown amount of tax on a higher amount of money in retirement? And when you have this conversation with a, with a business owner or a, a person that has wealth, every single time they're going to say, well, I'd rather pay the tax now because I know what the tax rate is and it's a lower amount of money. I can take the money out tax-free in the future whenever I want. That's a great deal. That's where we've kind of adjusted our focus. We've always done it that way. We've always, we've always worked with those types of clients, but when everything kind of shut down, when the transactional part of our business shut down, you know, we're not getting in the million dollar term app every day that, that we always got in, you know, the 10 or 15 apps a week where just the family needed to protect their mortgage because people aren't getting life insurance right now. They're not getting medical exams and they're afraid that they can't pay their bills. So now that we don't have that transactional mm -hmm. stuff, we really take a dive in and now we're going out and we're finding the people and we're finding the brokers and we're cherry picking their clients. And now their clients are interested in these conversations because they, they don't want to see another 30% drop in their portfolio. And they know that taxes are going up. So these are the things that, that are really starting to, to take off. And the good news is when the market comes back and we've had a really nice rebound so far, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to decrease the value of this. It just adds to the value of it. And I think it's an important thing. Are, are there projections that like what, uh, you know, percentages this uh, type of investing is going to 
grow. I know opportunity wise, when something like this happens and people start rethinking, you know, strategies and that type of thing, there can be a big boom. Uh, are there, are there certain projections as to like uh, how many folks are going to take advantage of this uh, well, stream? It's hard to say how many people are going to take advantage of it. I'll tell you right now, the conversations that I've had are, I would say I've had, 10 times the amount of conversations with people about this that I've had before this happened. You know, the other big thing that people have their eye on, on the life insurance, and I could almost guarantee this is going to happen, is the estate tax exclusion is going to be coming down at some point in the future. Uh, right now, it's you know around $11 million a person federally, and each state differs uh, on the state level. But when, when that changes, because it's going to change eventually, it's not going to stay that high forever. People are going to need insurance again. That was one of the biggest hurdles for the insurance industry to overcome is when that estate threshold went up, people stopped needing estate tax protection. People are going to start needing that again because that's going to be the other way that com- uh, the country is going to recoup some of the money they sent out is going to be the estate tax. So those are other conversations that we're having with people saying, hey, you know, you're, you're a wealthy family. You're worth 10 or $15 million. Right now, you don't have to pay estate tax if you both passed away. But what happens if that comes back down to $7 million? you're going to owe 40% on everything over that. When you start laying out the way it works and the logic behind it, and you just ask somebody, you go through a series of questions. What do you think is going to happen to taxes? Where do you think this money is going to go? Do you think taxes are going to go down in the future? And they're going to always say no. Like age, it's the only other thing that never comes down. You know, Then you ask them, if you had to guess, is the estate tax threshold going to stay there? Say where it is now, go up or come down. You know, Most people believe it's going to come down. And then when you have these conversations and people see it, they see the importance for not them. It's not protecting them. It's protecting their legacy. It's protecting their family. As an industry, I I think we don't do a good enough job of preparing people for the future. I think a lot of people, you know, they're out and they say, hey, if I can just make a sale today and get out of here, I'm going to do it because I have to pay my bill. These These are long process sales. These take months to complete. But they're important. You're, you're helping your client. And the more you help your client, the more clients you get. And these are the types of things that you need to be discussing with your clients to make them understand, you know, they've spent their whole life building up wealth and, and doing the right thing. And one misstep could lose them, can lose the clients a lot of, of what they built. Our job to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put a link in this episode show notes with uh, Jim's contact information in case that uh, anyone would uh, like to reach out about anything that he talked to us today about. Anything else that you wanted to add about that before we shift into our, our last question, which we'll take back to uh, Nichols? No, no. I, I think, uh, you know, again, it's important. I think people need to really spend the time. And for the Nichols kids, I, I think it's a great time to get in the industry because I'll be honest, we've had a couple of interns and they always end up having to do the stuff that's not fun. You know, they're doing the filing, they're doing the paperwork. They don't get to experience the fun side of the business. You know, what, what we all love about the business, the socializing, it is a hard business for kids to get. And it's a hard business. It's hard to succeed in early because, you know, a lot of people don't want to give their money to a 23 year old kid. You know, it's one of the first things people told me when you got out of cut, when I got out, get glasses. This was the advice. I, I, I was unbelievable looking back, get glasses and buy a lot of French cuff shirts. It'll make you look older and trustworthy. That was, that was what they told me to do. You know, <laughs> who's going to give their money to a 25 year old kid, but you just stick with it. And, you know, as you get older and your, your clients 
age with you, things work out pretty good. Before I let you go, let's talk professors for a little bit. So thinking back, who are some of the professors that you can remember at Nichols who really made an impact? Yeah, so uh, I was a marketing and sports management major. Uh, So on the marketing side, most of my classes were with uh, Larry Downs, who pretty sure Professor Downs isn't there anymore, but he was great. Like that old school business guy. I really enjoyed his classes. They were tough. He kind of gave us the, what, what the boardroom feeling was, you know, what's like to be in business and you have to have a thick skin and you have to think on your feet. And whenever I'm doing presentations, I remember I can just hear him in the back. Don't say, um, never, I never say feel when I'm with a client. I never say, I feel this is right for you. I just remember his, his words are burned in the back of my head. He said, feeling is an emotion. You don't sell with emotion. I believe and I conclude you never feel. And I can still hear him saying that to me. So definitely Larry Downs. And then Professor Liptrap was was very close with me. Uh, he helped out a ton. He helped me get my internship with the Rangers. I was just in the city. I was just up at Nichols on the way back from Boston, and we stopped and had lunch with him and and Charlie Robert, who was the AD when I was there. She wasn't a professor. Colleen Coles was the other sport management professor. And then I know who I remember speaking with. I only had one class with him. It was an economics class, but. I always loved chewing the fat with uh, Hans Despain. Great, great guy to chat with. We would, oh, we would yeah. talk yeah. for, <laughs> it would seem like hours about just uh, nothing important, just just chatting. Uh, I worked in the admissions, part of my work study was working in the admissions and on the tours, I would always run into him and we'd get into a dialogue about something. And next thing you know, it was a half hour later and he was late for class and I, I was late for work. If you were three minutes late or 30 seconds late to Larry Downs' class, that, was that door shut, done. you That's weren't right. getting back in. It's a very true statement. <laughs> so, so I'll just close with saying, uh, you know, I know you stay in contact still with a lot of your old classmates and, and hang out when you get the chance, probably more tame these days than your times in Remillard or wherever you were. But uh, you, you also stay involved with Nichols, which is great to see. I mean, it's it's coming up on 15 years since you graduated. I've seen you at all the New York City social events Nichols host. Uh, you've met with a number of different student groups over the years that we bring into New York City to visit or shadow our alumni in the area. And that's an important thing to our, our students. You know, we covered investments today in portfolios and that type of thing. But I think, you know, investing in your degree is something a lot of people are, are, are starting to see the importance of, you know, the, the degree on your wall grows every time, you know, an alumni makes an annual gift or hosts a group of students or hires a Nichols graduate. So as someone who is very active at Nichols still, what advice would you as someone who stayed involved with the college give to classmates who might not still be oh, as connected I, I think, as Nichols? I think you've made a great point. Two Nichols you've invested in in your college education and your college education doesn't end when you leave college you know you're part of your tuition at least in my opinion is is that network that it creates nichols has a great network of people in the business environment so i just think you're short selling yourself if you don't stay involved and if you help out students that are graduating now who's to say 10 years from now that those students that i helped out can't turn around and help me if i'm in the need or if if I need to make a contact, I, I think it's just investing in yourself. And I mean, that, the, the cool thing is like, if you're walking through an airport and you see someone wearing a nickel sweatshirt, you're just automatically drawn over there. That doesn't happen at so much with Boston College, uh, Notre Dame, uh, Michigan State. You might walk by the person and say, oh, I graduated from there. But I feel like you'll actively seek out somebody. It's, it's almost like a, a club, you know, when you see that Bison logo. So yeah, it's a, it's a great feeling. Oh, gee, we're looking for who?